to Romans chapter 10. Romans chapter 10. One thing I've learned in preaching for nearly 50 years and being married for 43 years is that Not everything you say is heard the way you said it. Meaning, I sometimes may think I said something, but other people hear something different. It's not just unique to me. That's the way of communication, because we come with a preconceived, um, background that we're saying something. So there is a difference between what you say and what you hear. And if you're, if you're wise in marriage and you begin to see that, I think maybe there was a difference here. And, um, it's wise to say, what did you hear me say? And then they would say something back to you. And you might say, where in the world did you get that from what I said? And the problem is not necessarily with them or with you. It's you're coming from two different perspectives. But if you don't, if you don't do the simplistic, and that sounds, well, that's so simplistic. What did you hear me say? Um, that's not talking down to people. That's understanding there can be differences in what is said and what is understood. In Romans chapter 8, 9, 10, and 11, Paul is giving both sides of a coin, so to speak, and, and he's not backing off one side or the other, And you may hear him say something here, and you might think, well, what is he saying over here? How does that fit in? And generally then, as we mentioned last week, the differences between the sovereignty of God and the free will of man, generally then, whatever whatever end of the spectrum we are on, we tend to go to the place in Romans 9, 10, or 11 that that supports our position if we're one of the one kind or the other. And we neglect the kind that the verses or the passages that, that contradict it. Um, Charles Spurgeon was once asked, how he could reconcile the true two truths of divine sovereignty and human responsibility. And he said, I wouldn't. I never reconcile friends. He went on and said that God predestines and that man is responsible are two things that few can see. They are believed to be inconsistent and contradictory, but they are not. It is just the fault of our weak judgment. He goes on to say that these two truths will be welded into one in eternity 
when we see that both flow from God's throne. And indeed it is. And I'm not going to go back and and go over what we went over last week. Um, it It is clear, and Paul is explaining in these passages that, as we saw last week, that God chose us. And, and the sovereignty of God, and we looked at the blessings of that. And he's also dealing with, and we'll be more heavily on it this week in Romans chapter 10, that man has a responsibility. And we, we use the illustration that has been given, that it's like an arch. They both are true. And the keystone of the arch that fits in the middle, that holds up both sides, is Jesus Christ. And you say, that can't be true. I, I love believing both are true because whoever I talk to, I can say one side or the other. I agree with you. I agree with you. But I agree 100% with that. They shake their head and walk away and say, you're an idiot. And I say, I'm an idiot. Okay. But I know that God is in control. And someday, it's not going to be God comes down and says, all of you that were sovereign grace alone were the right ones, or all of you that were free will of man alone were the right ones, he'll say, I was the right one. Not meaning me. God is the right one. And we'll say, wow, that's incredible. That's how it worked. But until then, we have to take what he says and say, God, thankfully you are incomprehensible and I can, I can rest in you and your care. Now in this passage, Romans 10, Paul is again explaining why some very religious people missed out on salvation. The Jews were about as religious as anyone could be. They were, they were, Fasciduous in, in keeping the law of Moses. In fact, they, they had people that spent their entire life studying the law and coming down to little things. They devised hundreds of extra laws that applied to every law that God had given, um, regarding the Sabbath. They had laws, how far you could walk on the Sabbath and what constituted work. And they were very, very careful about it. And, and the Jews believed if we could get everybody in our nation one day to keep the law, then the Messiah would come. And as you know from Scripture, that's an impossibility. As we've already seen from the book of Romans and we all fall short of the glory of God. There is none righteous, no, not one. And, and so Paul is still dealing with this. We said last week, Romans 8, what can separate us from the love of God? Nothing can. And then people said, well, wait a minute. If that's true, why is there a large amount of the Jews that aren't believers? They were chosen by God, but, but God only has a remnant left that are believers. Why is that? And so he goes in and he illustrates it. 
Read Romans chapter 9, and if you didn't listen to last week's sermon, then go back and listen to that, and it will explain that. But now Paul is continuing to deal with this question, if the Jews are God's chosen people, why are most of them rejecting Christ? And he begins chapter 10 like he did chapter 9. My heart's desire and prayer for Israel is that they might be saved. He, he lays down this burden that he has that I have this continual burden for my people that they would be saved. Even though he was called as a, and as an apostle to the Gentiles, he was burdened for his people. And so now then he goes in And he continues his discussion about why many of them are rejecting Christ. And again, the Jews are very religious people. So, we are applying it today in the realm of religious people. They are religious, what Paul is saying, but they're lost. And notice how he begins... They have, I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God. There are people that are very religious but are still lost. They have a zeal for God. They are, are very sincere. They, in, in some cases, are very dedicated, as in the, in the reference to the Jews. Not all of them were, but many of them were very committed, very dedicated, they they had a zeal for God, they had good intentions and good practices, and they mean well. He says, for I bear them witness that they have a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. The story is told of a dear old lady who all her life faithfully attended a mainline church in her small town in the Bible Belt. She helped in the nursery, helped in children's ministry, helped in the kitchen. But she was married to an old, mean man who had no time for religion. He said that church is full of hypocrites and do-gooders. Why do I want to hang out with people like that? He preferred his buddies at the local tavern and so on. You can can imagine. And he would joke about church. He said to his wife, feel free, go to church. That doesn't bother me a bit. I'm, I'm going to go fishing on Sunday mornings. And he would joke that I'm going to go baptize a few worms while you get your religious fix, Okay. So, if you were to ask her, on what basis do you hope to get to heaven? She may even be shocked that you're asking her. Why do you ask? I'm, I'm a good person. And I try to be nice to others. I serve in the church as much as possible. Um, I try to ignore the mean comments that my husband hurls at me. God knows the, I've done the best that I could considering the circumstances, and I feel that I'll go to heaven because of that, that God understands. 
Well, the story goes on that the husband hadn't been feeling well and and like we as men oftentimes do, he avoided the doctor like the plague and until finally he couldn't avoid it anymore and he was given the bad news that he has cancer, it's advanced cancer, his time is short and um, it may be only a few months to live, they tell him. And he begins going down rapidly and is put in hospice care. And one day a hospice worker who who he came to really appreciate her spirit and and her attitude begins to share with him the gospel. She tells him that God offers forgiveness for his sins as a free gift if he will repent and trust the work of Christ, his death, his resurrection. And she leaves him a gospel of John. Since he knows his time is short, when she leaves, she grabs that little booklet and she just, he begins devouring it. And as he reads, God opens his eyes to see his sin, to see his need of a Savior, and and there, in the quietness of his own room, he puts his trust in Christ. And a few weeks later, he died. And because he trusted Christ, he went to heaven. The wife probably would never say it, but secretly she's kind of relieved that he's gone. Life is easier for her. He was always difficult to live with. She continues on with her religious activities, and a few years later, she dies. But because she's trusting her own righteousness, this nice lady that did well, that had a zeal for God, ends up in hell. She never trusted Christ as the necessary perfect righteousness that God gives to all. We hear something like that and we think, many people would think, how can that be? I mean, that doesn't seem right. That at the, This guy's been an ordinary old cuss all his life, and at the end of his life, he can do this and he goes to heaven. And this lady's been super nice and kind and serving and helping and, and church member of the year award and all of that, and, and she goes to hell. And this is exactly what Paul is dealing with. There was a zeal for God, but not according to knowledge. It's not that we can build our own righteousness. They have a zeal, religious but lost. They have a zeal, but they don't understand the rules. I remember when I'd work with kids coaching wrestling. And little kids. And you get a kid come in that had watched pro wrestling. And, and you could, you'd see it right off the bat, you know. He takes off his jacket and he's, he's hopping around like, you know, he's watched all this pro wrestling. And, and so you get your eye on him and you're thinking, what is this guy going to do? So you turn him loose and he grabs a kid by the head and he's going to gouge his eyes out and you, hey, no, no, you can't do that here. You know, he wants to pick him up and just slam him to the ground. Well, no, 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 that's against the rules in 
in this type of wrestling, they get this dazed look of, oh, what kind of wrestling is this, you know? And, and he had a zeal. He wanted to whip the kid, but it wasn't according to the rules. God is the one who has set the rules. And there are many people, probably way more than we think, that have a zeal for God in one way or another. When you take in Muslims, they have a zeal for God. Buddhists have a zeal for God. You list all the religions of the world, Mormons, Jehovah's Witness, they have a zeal for God. But it's not according to knowledge. It's not according to the rules that God set. The lack of knowledge is not due to a lack of revelation, but it's due to a willful, obstinate rejection of truth. You've, you've heard people say, and maybe you've said it in your own mind, Don't confuse me with the facts. My mind is made up already. We see a lot of that today with what's going on, okay? And this is not according to knowledge. They did not, the Jews he was talking about, they did not believe that Jesus Christ was God incarnate. They were still waiting for the Messiah. And they didn't understand the full knowledge that they did not know God was in Jesus Christ, that Jesus Christ was God, and they rejected that. And so, they have a zeal. They don't understand the rules, so to speak. And then they go to make up their own rules. For they, being ignorant of God's righteousness and seeking to establish their own righteousness... So, they reject the righteousness of God and seek to establish their own righteousness. Well, I think if I do this and this and this and this, surely God will accept that. And he says, so they go about to establish their own righteousness by their works rather than By faith in Christ. They rely on their own abilities and their own works. We're reminded over and over again, twice in Proverbs, there is a way that seems right unto a man, but the end thereof are the ways of death. It may seem right that if I do this and this and this and this, why, look at, I'm better than these other people. So surely God will accept me. But they make up their own rules, which end in death, and they reject the righteousness of God. Notice what it says in verse 3. To establish, seeking to establish their own righteousness, have not submitted to the righteousness of God. Notice verse 21 of the same chapter. But to Israel, he says, all day long I have stretched out my hands to a disobedient and contrary people. 
They have rejected the righteousness of God. Verse 21 pictures a rejected lover. He continually reaches out toward the sinners whom he loves, but they reject him with disobedient and burdened hearts. In seeking their own righteousness, they stubbornly refuse to submit to the righteousness of God. They don't want to give control. They don't want to humble themselves. They don't want to admit their need. And he says here in verse 4 that they don't, they reject the fact that Christ is the end of the law. Meaning a couple of things. Christ is the end of the law. It's the goal of the law. The goal of the law is to show us our sin and bring us to Christ. It's the end goal of the law. Also, it's the end of the law because Christ fulfilled the law. He, he fulfilled it completely and he gives us his righteousness, but we must submit to it. Unbelief is seldom an intellectual problem because God has made salvation so simple, so basic to understand. Rather, unbelief almost always stems from a disobedient, hardened, arrogant heart that loves sin more than it loves God. See, the problem with Israel and with religious people is that Israel did not desire deliverance. They desired achievement. Meaning, deliverance is, help me, I'm, I'm done, I'm drowning, deliver me. I, I have no power in and of myself, deliver me. Achievement is, I'm going to do this and this and this, and I might need a little help, but we're going to achieve this. I'm going to achieve this. There is a great difference between deliverance and achievement. And they reject the need for deliverance. And they do many things that are close, that look like they're godly, but they're not. Because it's all in the arm of the flesh. And that is why Jesus said, many will say to me in that day, Lord, we prophesied in your name. We cast out devils. We did many wonderful works. We attended Grace Baptist Church. We did whatever. I, I read through the Bible ten times or fifty times. And Jesus says, and I will say unto them, I never knew you. Depart from me, ye that work iniquity. It is because they never personalize faith and trust in Jesus Christ. Notice they didn't lose their salvation. He said, I never knew you. You never were a child of mine. Because they were trying to achieve righteousness through their own works rather than receive righteousness, which is by faith. So, very religious some of these people are, but they're still lost. But then, as in the story, this old cuss, that on his deathbed trusted Christ as Savior, 
was lost, utterly lost, but ended up being found. Why? Because of faith and trust in Jesus. So a person that is lost and then found or saved, there's a couple things that he mentions here. They must recognize that you cannot save yourself by keeping God's law. Verse 5, For Moses writes about the righteousness which is by the law, the man who does those things shall live by them. Meaning, in order to get righteousness by the law, you must live the law. If you break one aspect of the law, you've broken the law. So what he's saying is, you need to realize that I can't save myself by keeping the law. There's nothing I can do that will fulfill every aspect of the law, as we've already seen in Romans 2 and Romans 3. But then they must go on and recognize that Christ has done for you what you could never do for yourself. Notice verse 6. But the righteousness of faith speaks in this way. Do you say in your heart, who will ascend into heaven? That is to bring Christ down from above. And what he's saying is, there was nothing we did that brought Christ down in the incarnation. Now, we had nothing to do with that. And he goes on and said, did you ascend into the abyss? We had nothing to do with Christ's resurrection. No man had anything to do with Christ's coming, which we're remembering at Christmas, his incarnation. And we had nothing to do with his resurrection. So again, he's saying, you had nothing to do. This was the, and this is, this was the sovereign plan of God. And he goes on and says, verse 8, But what does it say? The word is near you in your mouth and in your heart. That is the word of faith which we preach. That if you confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it's recognizing this is all a work of God, and, and I recognize what God has done for me, what I never could do for myself, and I must believe that Jesus was crucified and rose again in payment for my sin. And he goes on, and he says, for with, verse 10, for with the heart, one believes unto righteousness, and with the mouth confession is made unto salvation. For the Scripture says, whoever believes on him will not be put to shame. For there is no distinction between Jew or Greek, for the same Lord over all is rich to all who call upon him. For whosoever calls on the name of the Lord shall be saved. That if thou wilt confess with your mouth the Lord Jesus and believe in your heart that God hath raised him from the dead, you will be saved. These aren't two requirements for salvation. It's not believing and confessing. Rather, the repeated emphasis on faith shows that faith is the only requirement. And if you believe, you will confess. 
Just like James said, if you believe, there will be works. It's not two, what, it's not two requirements. What happens if I, if I believe in my heart, but I haven't confessed? No. Out of the, out of the heart, the mouth speaks. You believe that Jesus Christ's death, burial, and resurrection paid the penalty for my sin, and it is that faith, believing, that then will affect your life, and you will confess. See, the Philippian jailer, what must I do to be saved? Paul said, believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and you will be saved. Outward confession is inevitable outcome of genuine saving faith. Paul said in Romans 1, I am not ashamed of the gospel of Christ. It is the power of God unto salvation to everyone who believes. So he says, if there is genuine faith, you won't be ashamed of it. And one of the ways that we outwardly confess that God is designed is through following the Lord in the waters of baptism. We're saying, I am a follower of Christ. I'm one with His death, His burial, and His resurrection. So, people are religious and lost because they haven't trusted in the finished work of Jesus Christ. People may be lost and for much of their life, but when they trust in Jesus Christ, and his death, burial, and resurrection, they are given life. And so Paul is teaching this, this aspect of salvation. And in Romans 9, he said, God will have mercy on who he will have mercy. But then, how is this in Romans 10 that he leaves it like it's up to our action? Well, let's just, just first go back and, and, and mention three things about the gospel. The gospel is, number one, accessible to all. It's different than the law. The gospel places righteousness where any soul can reach it. Believe on the Lord Jesus Christ, and thou shalt be saved. It's accessible to all. It demands no works on the part of man. The only thing demanded of man is faith in God's Word, faith in Jesus Christ. Secondly, it is offered to all, and really accessible to all. The first ten verses deal with that. To the Jew or Gentile, whoever believes, it is offered to all. The whoever that is used in verse 11 and 13. Whoever believeth shall be saved. It is, it's no distinction made. And, and in understanding this whoever, for whosoever shall call upon the name of the Lord, that is universal. We have access. It is universal. And, and really, as Paul is bringing out here in this, we have a responsibility. Our job is to proclaim the gospel, the good news, universally. Whether to the Jew, the Gentile, the white, the black, the Indian, whatever it is, 
Our job is to proclaim it universally and understand. I can't put this together. God sovereignly chooses and man has a free will. Don't worry about it. Just be busy planting and watering. Some plant, some water, God gives the increase. He will have mercy on who he will have mercy. It's it's God that does the work. Our job is to, as he brings out in in these verses that we don't have time to look to, how shall they hear without a preacher? And it isn't specifically talking about a pastor. How shall they hear without someone proclaiming it to them? And how shall they proclaim it unless they've been sent? We've been sent. Go ye into all the world and preach the gospel to every creature. And he said, it is a beautiful thing when, when someone receives the good news from a messenger and they respond and they say, wow, how beautiful are the feet of them that spread the message of the gospel. It is a beautiful thing. And the gospel is accessible to all. It's offered to all. But it is not obeyed by all. Verses 16 through 21. And we don't have time to go into them. But he mentions here, although the message of the gospel is simple, yet it is not received because of our obstinate, disobedient, arrogant pride and self-will. And God came so close to man by sending, we're remembering at Christmas, sending His Son. He came and dwelt among us. And yet, the overwhelming majority of people reject His righteousness. Israel is without excuse in her unbelief. It is not a matter of misunderstanding. It's a matter of disobedience. The Bible consistently maintains that the reason for men spending eternity in hell is not because God did not choose them, but because they did not choose God. And God alone gives the one the power to choose him, but it's not a double election. He elects some to go to heaven and he elects some to go to hell. No, we were all in the pot going to hell. By our nature and by our choice. We were condemned already. It was God that showed mercy. We condemn ourselves. It is God that shows mercy and He does that accessible to all, offered to all, but it is not obeyed by all. People that end up in hell are there because they have chosen sin over righteousness. They have chosen to get to heaven on their own terms rather than God's terms. They've chosen to not obey the rules. And condemnation is always traced to unbelief. Now when the good news is preached, some hear it and believe it and call upon the Lord to save them. But sadly, many stumble over it. Chapter 9, verse 32. I lay in Zion a stumbling block, a rock of offense. No, I'm, I'm not going to go there. I, I don't believe that. 
They stumble over it and head toward eternal judgment. So we ask, what makes the difference? The Bible plainly teaches, although we can't put them together, as we've said, if someone is saved, it is totally due to God choosing him before the foundation of the world. And effectually calling him to Christ and saving him by grace alone. There, It is not of works lest any man should boast. If someone is lost, he is totally responsible for his disobedient, hard heart that rejects the grace of God. In other words, if you believe, it is because of God's mercy on you. If he had not intervened, we would still be in our sins. But if you do not believe and reject the offer of salvation in Christ, no one can blame God. He has provided that for all man. We cannot blame God for not choosing us. We have the responsibility. You might say, I don't understand all that. If you understand this, your need of a Savior and deliverance and have called upon Him for the forgiveness of sin, you have everlasting life. And it will be manifested in your life, the working of God's Spirit in your life. And if you have everlasting life, it is our responsibility to be the spokesmen, to be the living epistles, to carry that to those that are in desperate need of deliverance all around us. No one is going to be able to say, God sent me to hell. It is our willful disobedience and rejection of the righteousness of God. Going about to establish our own righteousness, we reject the righteousness of God and, and he closes this chapter, all day long I have stretched out my hands to you, to a disobedient and contrary people. And he longs for people to come to him. And he is the one that shows mercy, and he gives us the responsibility to respond to that. Two weeks from today, we'll get into... Um, Romans 11, and and be seeing how he wraps up all this discussion on the sovereignty of God and the free will of man. Romans 10 is heavy on the free will of man. Romans 9, heavy on the sovereignty of God. Romans 9, 10, and 11 show we have a responsibility to respond to God. Once you've responded, you and I have a responsibility to carry the message to others. How shall they hear? Unless someone speaks unto them the Word of God. And that's our responsibility. So, you know, you need, every one of us needs to ask. We, we are, we are religious people. Just by being here today, we're religious people. But are you trusting in your religious practices or trusting in Jesus Christ alone? Are you trusting? There are people that are trusting. I was baptized at Grace Baptist Church. That doesn't mean you're going to heaven if you've never really 
And, and, and we say, in order to be baptized, you have to profess that you know Christ. Well, we can go through all the motions without ever submitting to God and saying, I need you and your righteousness alone to deliver me. Your death, burial, and resurrection. I think one of the saddest things of all, there are going to be many good people. Like the lady in the story that we told early. I'm sure she was a, a great person, a wonderful neighbor. Bake cookies and take to her neighbors and anything needed done. It. Many good, good people are going to be in hell. And there are going to be some people that you never thought would make it there that trusted Christ as their Savior, and they're going to be there. Why? Because of God's righteousness, not their own. And that is between us and God, how we respond. And and if you've trusted Christ as your Savior, rejoice and live like it and act like it and and. Go tell the story of Jesus Christ. And this is the perfect time, Christmas. Every time's the perfect time because every, every day, every minute, people need deliverance. May God help us to not wrestle with the things that are beyond our mind, but to obey the things that He's instructed us. Heavenly Father, I pray that we would have a renewed love and appreciation for your mercy. Because it is only your mercy that saves us. It isn't because we had such great intellectual knowledge that we figured this out and we came to you, Lord. We would still be dead in our trespasses and sins were it not. For your mercy. And I pray if there's one here today that, that thinks because they've grown up in a church, know all about it, but Lord, they have never really turned from trusting themselves to trusting in the work of Christ. Lord, would your spirit weigh heavy on those hearts today? And would they Bow in submission to you and your plan for righteousness for us in Jesus Christ. Lord, I pray for every one of us as believers that we wouldn't just receive this gift and and sit back and wait for your coming, but Lord, that we would be instruments proclaiming the glad tidings of good news for all mankind. May it not just be proclaimed through our words, but Lord, may our lives manifest a difference, that we serve a different master, a better master. And Lord, we rejoice at the privilege we have to represent you in this time and in this age. May we be empowered for your glory, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.